You are listening to the No Water Methodists podcast, and this is Jeffrey Rickman, and I'm the pastor, and I'm very glad you're listening. It's my hope that in producing this stuff that we bring some people closer to Jesus. My fear sometimes is that by making it easier to encounter this information and uh, something that resembles a relationship that we're kind of like making it easier for people to avoid actually participating in the life and the work of the church. So I, I need to make sure that all listeners understand, hey, it's great to listen to this at home, but it does not replicate what you experience by being a member of the body of Christ. There's just too much that happens. It's not just Sunday morning. It's the connections you build with other people who are walking in covenant relationship with God. There's nothing you can do outside of the church to replicate the church. So listen to whatever preachers you want to listen to, including me, um, but participate in a covenant community. For God's sake, Jesus died for the church. He, he created the church. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Yeah, the truth. So this is, this is all biblical language, and um, I, I just really hope that everybody listening to this is actively involved in a church. Um, that does not at all connect to the message from this last Sunday, which you're going to hear. Um, I, I think if I had to sum up what, what you're about to hear, it's a repudiation of prosperity gospel. And I am very clear about three quarters through. I'm not railing against the rich. I, I, I think God loves rich and poor alike. I just think that when we equate material well-being with God's love for us, things get pretty wacky. And there are just dozens of Old Testament and New Testament explicit examples of people being exposed as faithless whenever they're not willing to joyfully serve the Lord if material circumstances aren't how they want. So we start with the Israelites and the wilderness. Well, before they even go into the wilderness, before they even go to Mount Sinai, complaining and grumbling against Moses and against God because they're thirsty. Um, and then we go into the New Testament where Paul reminds us that, that God died for us, Christ died for us while we were dead in our sins. That proves God's love for us. We should be willing to suffer for his name's sake. And then uh, we encounter Jesus coming to the woman at the well and um, ministering to her in ways that many people would think are uh, not appropriate. And yet, um, Jesus was perfect in all that he did. So what what message there, is there for us in that? Um, I think that's all I need to say for an intro today. If you want to hear more from me, uh, you can always check out my podcast. Yeah, it's a different one. It's on YouTube and Facebook. It's called Plain Spoken. And, uh, you know, consider, if you're not tied to a church, being yoked to mine. So come closer. See what you'll uh, find out. Uh, enjoy the podcast today, folks. I'll, uh, I'll see you later. Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. All right, it's time to turn to God's Holy Word, and uh, we're in the Revised Common Lectionary. It's four readings from different parts of the Bible. There's always an Old Testament, always a Psalm, always a New Testament, always a Gospel. 
and usually the themes are pretty clearly related. The Old Testament readings uh, take place with the Israelites wandering through the wilderness. So, we need to recapitulate what's happened. The Israelites are the descendants of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who went to Egypt, and it started off good, but then their descendants, thousands of them, were enslaved by the Egyptians when they got too numerous. And they cried out under bondage to God, and God heard their voice, and he sent Moses to liberate them, came to Pharaoh, said, let my people go. Whenever Pharaoh's heart was hardened, God plagued them with ten plagues. Finally, Pharaoh let them go. But he changed his mind. He chased them out into the wilderness. They were cornered against the Red Sea. God told Moses, grab that staff, put it to the sea. The sea parted. They walked through. Pharaoh and his army chased after. Then God killed them all in an instant with the waters collapsing in on them. The part that we're hearing today is before they come to Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. Good. Sinai and Horeb are the exact same mountain. They're at a place in between the Red Sea and Mount Sinai where they will receive God's law, but they haven't received it yet. But already you see patterns beginning here that then are maintained, and they are a prefiguring of our faith. So Christians often speak in terms of being in the wilderness. It reflects the Israelites' time in the wilderness. We often talk about the promised land, that is salvation in Christ Jesus, the heavenly realms. We talk about crossing the River Jordan, that's dying, okay? This story, we're hearing part of it, is a prefiguring of the Christian story that is fulfilled in Christ. So, uh, keep those things in mind as we attend upon our first reading. I'm going to have a copy up here and a copy up here. Whoever our readers are, you can read down here or you can come up to the pulpit and read. This is America, you do what you want. Our Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7 which you can find on page 111 in your pew Bibles. Listen for the word of God. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys, according to the commandment of the Lord, and pitched in Rapidan, and there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Israel, or excuse me, out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thy hand and go. Behold, I will smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the chiding of the children of Israel, and because they tempeth the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Masa and Meribah are Hebrew words, one meaning uh, complaining, another one tempting. Um, and it's brought up later in numbers. They come back around. 
And uh, once again, Moses has to hit a rock to get water out of it, but this time he does it wrong, and that makes him unworthy to enter the promised land. It's a hard story to understand for us where we want a God who is a bit more merciful than that, but we've got the God that we've got. What does this portion have to do with us today? We are God's elect Christians are, and we have a prefiguring in the Israelites and how they walked with the Lord. And in this story, was the Lord happy with them? No. We see a story over and over throughout their time in the wilderness where they question God's leadership and judgment. And they question Moses. And if you notice, Moses said, why are you tiding with me? Why are you testing the Lord? He equates his leadership with God. And that's quite a thing. In America, we don't like anything like that. And to be honest with you, I don't like anything like that because there are so many religious leaders that not just fall short, but they're actively evil. I saw a report this week that a bunch of the Hillsong musicians, I don't know if you know who Hillsong, there's some people who uh, are tied to a huge megachurch based in Australia. They write so much popular Christian music. They, uh, they embezzled millions of dollars for personal luxurious use personally. Um, that it's now, you know, a whistleblower came out and exposed them as being worshipers of mammon rather than God. This sort of thing happens all the time. It's disgusting. If you know who Ravi Zacharias was, he was one of the world's most renowned Christian apologists, an amazing speaker, very likable. But when he died, it turned out he'd been molesting women around the world for decades. He'd go to massage parlors and proposition them and put pressure on them. Disgusting behavior for a Christian leader. It's those sorts of things where uh, I think it is just abominable for, for men in particular and also women to claim God's authority over others and then abuse them. But that's not what's going on here. Moses loves his people. He's leading them in holiness and righteousness. And what does he get in return? They're grumbling. They're complaining. They're blaming him for their suffering. And they're questioning whether or not God is strong enough to provide for them in the wilderness. They go to this place called Rephidim. It's a, it's a stopway point for those on the road. They got a huge bunch of them. There's supposed to be water there. It's either dried up or they can't get access to it for one reason or another. They're thirsty, which is not great. And then they start accusing Moses, why would you bring us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Why did God do this to us? And Moses says, well, why are you guys chiding me? Why are you testing the Lord? And remember, these are people who've already seen God's miracles, right? They, they saw what he did in Egypt. He's already been, he led them through the Red Sea. They've already seen this stuff, and yet they get thirsty, and they start questioning God. Now, the clear sermon in this is, how many of us have seen God's power, have felt his love, but then we go through a hard season in life, and all of that, it's like it never happened. All of a sudden, I just can't get to worship. All of a sudden, I need to focus on me. I can't focus on God anymore. I can't focus on my faith. I need to just get my bills paid because God's not going to take care of me. I, I just need to take care of me. I know nobody here is ever like that, but it is a pretty common thing. See, we have to always, you know, sometimes I'm preaching we have to have that eternal vision, seeing things from God's bird's eye view. Sometimes we need to have that ancient vision. We need to be looking at what God has already done to show us who he is. Is God powerful? Is he good? If he is powerful and good, and we are in him, then do we have anything to fear? Do we have anything to worry about? How many times in the Bible are we told not to fear? Jesus explicitly in the Sermon on the Mount says, do not have worries. Do not worry. 
God keeps track of the sparrows. He can't keep track of you. And yet we go through some type of momentary pain. Sometimes it lasts for a while for us. And we go, oh, God's not going to save me. God can't save me. i got to focus on me. We might even get hard-hearted towards God. Say, oh, God, why are you letting me do that? Why are you putting me through this? Don't you love me? That shows that we fundamentally misunderstood the relationship we have with God. When he loves us, that does not mean that he keeps us from suffering. I love Vody Bauckham. He's one of my favorite preachers, even though he's reformed. I can forgive him. But one of the things he says, God punished his own son on the cross for your sins, painfully crushed him and embarrassed him for hours, and yet you, he wouldn't want to go through any momentary displeasure. It's a ridiculous concept, and yet so many of us treat God like a genie where, you know, God wants me to be happy. He wants me to have all my heart's dreams. He wants me to never go through any hard times. The Bible does not say that. What does the Bible say? The Lord disciplines the one he loves. And at Masa and Meribah, here at this place, it's a similar location. Well, we're going to hear in Psalm 95, which we're about to do, that they showed lack of faith in God whether it be here, whether or not he could provide water and keep them alive, or whether it be when they sent the spies into the promised land and they said, it's full of giants and we're like crickets to them. We can't do it. Their lack of faith is what made God so upset with them that he said, you know what? You guys are going to be trapped in the wilderness for 40 years until all of you die, and I'm just going to let your kids go. None of you can go in the promised land. That's the God we serve. It's not the God that we design You know, here's the thing that's so hard for our culture to understand. We don't get to decide who God is. He's not a genie. God is God. He is more real than you and I are. He is who he is, and we either accept that or we reject that. And there are plenty of people who just reject that. They still sing Jesus. They still love the hymns. They still give to the church, but they don't love God. They don't love who he is in the Bible. They don't love who he said he is. We're going to be the sober ones. We're going to be the ones who say, God, you are who you say you are. And it's hard, but you are good, and I'm with you till the bitter end. In fact, I want to be with you for eternity. That's the God we've got. We've got a God who lets us feel the consequences of our actions and inactions. And when we're faithless to him, he's still faithful to us. But the provisions are different based on how we live, how we die. Let's, let's go to Psalm 95. Let's look at how it talks about it. Page 814 in your hymnal. I can, I can do it alone. You just chill out in the back, eat bonbons, lady. That's, that's an ongoing joke with me and Sarah Beth. Whenever um, her organ instructor learned that she was marrying a preacher, he was so disappointed and her going to this hick town in little Idaho to marry me, he said, you're not going to have anything to do. You're just going to sit around and eat bonbons. <laughs> that was before we got married, and that's, that's one of our older jokes that we've got. She's not eating bonbons, but she is. Uh, she, huh? You wouldn't? Well, I would too. We'd all just pass the bonbons around, have bonbon worship. All right, so we're going to sing uh, response one. Uh, it sounds like this. Harden not your hearts, listen to God's voice. 
Not hard at all. I'll sing it one more time and then you join me. Harden not your hearts. Listen to God's voice. So we're singing this to one another. Harden not your heart means don't be closed to the Lord. Be open to the Lord. Listen to his voice. All right, let's sing that together. Harden not your hearts. Listen to God's voice. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us come into God's presence with thanksgiving. For the Lord is a great God and a great ruler above all the gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth and also the heights of the mountains. Harden not your hearts, listen to God's voice. O come, let us worship and bow down. For the Lord is our God. Hear the voice of the Lord today. Harden not your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your forebears tested me and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Harden not your hearts, listen to God's voice. So it begins with praise. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us heartily rejoice in the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and show ourselves glad in him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God. He's a great king above all gods. In his hand are all the corners of the earth, and the strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his, and he made it, and his hands prepared the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is the Lord our God. It is he that has made us, not we ourselves. We are his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. O go, uh, 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 blah, 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 blah. Hear the voice of the Lord today. Harden not your minds, as at Meribah as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. It's talking about this story that we just had. He's saying, your life right now is the wilderness. Where you are right now, God has already saved you. Remember how God saved the Israelites out of Egypt, right? They saw his saving work. We are the ones on the other side of our salvation. We have encountered the living Lord. We have been saved by the atoning blood of Christ Jesus being applied to our hearts, and we're now in the wilderness. He's leading us to the promised land, but that means we're in a time of suffering and struggle right now. Anyone here ever struggled and suffered in your life? Did it mean that God didn't love you? I've already talked about this. If you didn't know the answer to that, you're not paying attention. Just because you're suffering does not mean God doesn't. In fact, a lot of times your suffering is from the Lord. And we're going to talk about that in Romans in the next reading. Why would God send me pain? Why would he suffer? Why would he cause me to suffer? Um, I remember, uh, okay, so I'm going to have an anecdote here. A little story. Uh, anybody see the pictures of me taking my two eldest daughters to the father-daughter dance a couple weeks ago? Oh, that was so precious, wasn't it? It was a princess-themed. They gave them a little tiara, 
and a little ring, and oh, they're so pretty, and you see the pictures, and mm-hmm, they're looking so cute. And then one of my daughters, I'm not going to say which, acted like a princess for three days after that till I had to threaten to take her tiara away. I call my daughters princess, but it's like an ironic thing. You know, you're not royalty. You know, we're all servants of God in my house, you know. And then, yes, he elevates us to be a royal priesthood, but then we behave the way Christ did. King of, the, king of kings, he became a servant of all, right? And that's the kind of royalty we are. We're not spoiled royalty commanding others to do as we wish, uh, no matter if your daddy calls you princess or not. So here's the thing. Humans become quite nasty when we get everything we want. Humans become quite disgusting when we don't have any trials at all. We don't have perseverance. We don't have endurance. We don't have dignity. We become these nasty creatures that stomp our feet and complain when we don't get what we want. You know I'm right. And everybody tempts themselves. They go, well, I could get everything I want and still be pretty great. No, you can't. No, you cannot. Anyone who wants to perform well in a marathon does not just get up there with their good intentions and motivation and complete the race. Rather, there is a lot of training that comes before. And why would we think that spiritual issues are any different than physical? Well, we would think that because then it makes it so we don't have to do the hard work now. But there's going to become a day where we're expected to perform, and we're going to perform about as well as someone who just sits on the couch eating bonbons all day and tries to run a marathon. It ain't going to go well. Yes, bonbons are not a health food. They're a dessert that's not good for us, even though it tastes good. And that's how a lot of people make it through their spiritual lives. They just avoid pain, pursue pleasure, and expect that God is going to fulfill what's lacking regardless of what they do. It's a fictitious way to go through life. We need to be training now. And the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves. He provides trials for us. I'm not going to tell you who, but I got a, I got a friend, a brother in this church that is regularly going through a hard time, and he was trying to discern, hey, should I stick with this or should I get out? And we talked through it, and he, he decided, you know what, I think the Lord has ordained that I should suffer in this time, and he's suffering with dignity. I'm impressed and encouraged all the time I see him, and he doesn't complain. He does his best to keep his chin up. Sometimes it's hard, but the Lord is building that character in my brother, and that's the sort of person that humbly just walks with the Lord that even if nobody sees it, God sees it, and he rewards that. So let's, let's look at our uh, Romans reading. Let's go to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Keep these themes in mind that we've already talked about. Let's uh, attend upon the word as our third reader comes forward. Our uh, third reading comes from the New Testament, from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, which you can find on page 1588 in your pew Bibles. Listen again for the word of God. Therefore... Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, 
In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. The word of the Lord. As the weather gets warmer outside, the sun shines on the roof and it expands so that if you, if you haven't heard that before, the roof's not about to fall in. Um, that's just physics. Um, I had a preacher come in here one time and he heard it and went, oh. I said, I explained it. He said, are you sure it's not like something supernatural happening? And I said, well, could be. <laughs> The part that I, I highlighted before it came is uh, in verse 3, but it says, but we glory in tribulations. Tribulations is, is hard times where we're really uh, in pain and having a hard time going on. We glory in tribulations also knowing that tribulation worketh patience or endurance in some translations. And patience works experience. Uh, in the NIV, it's character. I kind of like that one better. And experience gives hope. And hope does not let us come to shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, who is God. So the whole thing is, in order to be drawn closer to God, we have to suffer. We have to. Remember, is Jesus God? Did he suffer? Oh my gosh, yes. If you've never read what the experience of crucifixion was like, you don't know what suffering is. It's about the most painful and disgusting and embarrassing death that humans have ever arranged for one another. It's awful. And then to imagine on top of that physical mortification, he took our sins upon him and was bearing them on the cross. No one has ever suffered the anguish that Christ Jesus suffered on the cross. Nobody could. And he did that for us. Here it says, while we were dead in our sins, while we were powerless, while we were still a slave to sin, we could not turn, we could not repent, we could not work righteousness. Christ did that for us while we were disgusting, awful, sinful. Think about if you were the one spitting in his face, slapping him across the face, putting that crown of thorns on him, nailing those, thor those, those, those stakes into his wrists and feet, and he looks you in the eyes and says, I'm doing this for you. That's the God we have. He did not have to do that. And some people have this idea of God as being like a genie. Oh, he just loves me so much. He's just willing to bend over backwards just to have me close. That is a wrong-headed way of thinking about this. God is not some uh, spurned lover that we broke up with, and he's just saying, baby, please come back. He is a righteous king who's willing to take us back, but he's the center of the story. We are not. Each of us has gone astray. We have worshipped our own hearts. We started with that prayer of confession. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. We have done those things which we ought not to have done. 
We come to him as unworthy people. We're, our final reading this morning is going to be the Samaritan woman at the well. She is unworthy, but he comes to her and offers her salvation. He doesn't come to anyone beating their chest and saying, hey, I'm pretty great, right, Jesus? You sure are lucky to have me in your church. I got a lot of money to give. I got a good singing voice. I sure am likable. I can connect your church with lots of influential people. People like that can be in the church, but don't think that God is impressed. It says God does not show favoritism. It says he's not a respecter of persons. Now, that's not to, I'm not at all talking badly about people who have money or people who are... Don't be insulted. I think that's great. But unless that stuff is given with a servant's heart, it's doing nothing for you. We all come here as beggars at the feet of a God who is sovereign. Amen? That's the right terms of this relationship. Now, in Romans, what it makes clear is, while we are in this, this uh, the, the, the Hebrew word for uh, wilderness is midbar. While we're in the midbar, it's a time of tribulation. It's a time of suffering where we have to learn to be strong, to endure. It generates endurance and patience and character and experience, and it results in us being drawn in hope closer to the Holy Spirit. Now, who wants that? Who wants to be drawn closer to God's Holy Spirit? I'm not, go ahead and put your hand down and don't put it back up, but how many of us would keep our hand up if we knew that the only way to that was going through tribulation and pain? We live in a culture right now that insists that we can have our cake and eat it too. We can live easy lives pursuing pleasure, and then we can die and be in the presence of God. I'm not sure that's what the Bible says, guys. The Bible, especially the New Testament, is full of people starting with Jesus, then to Stephen, then to, to, to Philip, Paul, Peter, James, Jude, the whole kit and caboodle. They lived lives of hardship. Their lives were not about their own, the, themselves anymore. Their lives were poured out for others because that's how Christ lived, right? Did Christ come to glorify, uh, to, to serve himself? He did come to be glorified, yes, but he was glorified by being lifted up on a cross, and that's how you and I live. Something got warped in America, guys. Something got warped. We did some good things in our culture, but one of the bad things that we did was we equated God's love with material well-being, and that is an unscriptural perspective. I'm not saying that God doesn't love rich people. He does. He loves all people the same, and he calls us all to a cruciform way of life. That means to mimic how Christ lived and died. I'm not preaching anything new today. I know I preached this message like a hundred times, probably more. But sometimes people just need to hear it that hundred and first time and it finally clicks. So I, I, I don't, uh, well, let's, let's sing about trusting God. And then we're going to hear one last scripture about who Christ invites to be with him. And then we'll see what the Holy Spirit does on our hearts. All right, so let's... Um, Let's, uh, let's open our hymnals to page 337, and this is, this is an exhortation that we should only trust God. We don't trust our money, we don't trust our friends, we don't trust our family, we don't trust our hobbies, we don't trust our bodies. Yeah, hey, older folks, I know this is kind of ageist, but how does it work out when you trust your bodies forever? I'm 38 and my body's already not treating me like it did when I was 19, all right? That was, that was pretty fun when I was 19. My body doesn't, it's not going to last. There's only one thing that I can trust, 
and it ain't a thing. It's my God. Only trust him, number 337. Let's sing together. All right, our final reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 5 through 42. Listen to the word of God. Then cometh Jesus to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. I'm going to go ahead and take a time out. Samaria was full of Samaritans. If you don't know your biblical history, for a time the Jews were divided between the southern kingdom of Judea northern kingdom of Israel. When they split, the northerners were worried that if they kept coming down and worshiping in Jerusalem, that their loyalties would be divided. So they created their own religion up north, where they worshiped on this mountain. They created idols. They said they were worshiping the same God, but you can't worship the God of the Bible and serve idols, right? So they created a counterfeit Judaism. So the Jews in the south rightfully resented them for making a mockery of their religion. That's like the Mormons today. Mormons took a lot from Christianity, but warped it to create their own different religion. And so many Christians today rightfully resent Mormonism for creating a counterfeit Christianity that does not save. The way that God is using them, though, is to put us to shame. They're often more moral and caring and giving and forgiving than people who have true doctrine in Jesus Christ. So uh, I will insult a Mormon's faith, but a lot of Mormons outdo Christians in the way that we should live. That's a sermon for another day. Jesus is now in this area full of Samaritans who are following a counterfeit faith, worshiping in the wrong place. Let's see what happens with that. Verse 6, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou would have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. He's talking about himself in the third person. If you knew who was talking to you, you would have asked for living water. Now, in the Hebrew or Aramaic at that time, living water also meant running water. So he's saying, if you'd asked me, I would have given you some uh, water from a river. That's how she would have heard it in this time. Verse 11, the woman saith unto him, sir, thou hast nothing to draw with. You don't have a bucket to put down in the well. And the well is deep from whence then hast thou that living water? She's saying, well, how are you going to get that water? Where does it come from? She's saying, you're not making any sense. She says, art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? What's the answer? Is Jesus greater than Jacob? Yes. She's lifting it up like, oh, you think you're more of a miracle worker than Jacob? You think you're holier than him? And the clear answer is, uh, yeah. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, whosoever drinketh of this water, the water in the well, shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Instantly, we're thinking of that first reading of the Israelites being thirsty in the desert, right? We're in the desert. Sometimes we go through hard times and we're getting thirsty. 
We're listening to this and Jesus is saying, I can give you water so that you never get thirsty, even though you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And the woman saith unto him, sir, give me this water. That's what we're all saying to him right in our hearts. Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Wouldn't it be so wonderful never to thirst again, to be fully satisfied in the Lord? Verse 16, Jesus saith unto her, go, call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou hast is not, whom thou now hast is not thy husband. And that saidst thou truly. If, if that confused you, he's saying, I know your history. I know where you come from. You've been married to five guys, and you're shacking up with some guy now that's not even your husband. Does this fit the definition of a sinner? Yes. You know, if it had been two husbands, maybe the first died. If it had been three, maybe the first two died. But after that, it starts looking pretty suspicious if they're all dying. But odds are they're still living, and she's just a woman who has not governed herself well. She's in, And, you know, we know people like this today. And if there are some in our midst that are like this, don't hear any condemnation from me. But the Bible is very clear. You know, marriage is a lifelong covenant till death do us part. That's a biblical expectation, and that we remain faithful throughout in hard times and easy times and sickness and in health. That's the vow we take. And so this is a woman who has almost certainly broken her vows and is now entering into a relationship with a man that is not under the blessing of covenant marriage, but is just following the will of the flesh, okay? I don't think there's any other way to spin this where she is a saint, and Jesus is coming to her and saying, I recognize you are a saint. Here, have a blessing. He knows the woman he's talking to is definitionally not worthy. She is a sinner. Everybody knows it. Everybody in the Samaritans knew it. This is a woman walking around. Might as well have the, what was the scarlet letter? It was an A. She might as well be walking around with a red A on her. It's been a while since I read that story. Jesus chooses her to approach. And then he calls her out on her sin. Some people think it's an unloving thing to call somebody out on their sin. He even sets her up. He's kind of cruel about it. He says, go get your husband, knowing she doesn't have a husband, and he's about to call her out. And it's to her credit that she responds this way, because most people today would say, how dare you? How dare you judge me? You don't know my life. You don't know my story. Let me tell you about my first husband. He was a bad guy. You know, people, people's justice. She doesn't even try and justify herself. The woman saith unto him, verse 19, sir... I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. She's talking about in Samaria, the ones who left and started their own religion. And ye say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. So she knows he's a Jew, and the Jews worship in Jerusalem. She's saying, okay, who's right in this debate? Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship you know not what. We worship. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So she starts with this, where's the right place to worship? And he says, well, technically it's Jerusalem, but the hour is coming and already is where location doesn't matter. What matters is, are you worshiping in the spirit and in truth? 
And man, I could have preached for 45 minutes just on that today. Are we worshiping in the spirit and in truth? Just briefly, I think a good test for if we're worshiping in the spirit is, do we know who the Holy Spirit is and are we walking with him in our daily lives and dedicating our lives to him? Are we letting him make a home in us and rework us from the inside? When we present ourselves as holy and living sacrifices to God, are ourselves being changed in the renewing of our minds? Are we being sanctified? And then when we're talking about are we worshiping the Lord in truth, am I practicing in any sense denial or avoidance in my life? Am I running from the truth? Am I needing to get drunk or smoke pot or be distracted with silly diversions that have no meaning? Or am I gladly participating in sobriety and the truth and seeking truth and speaking truth and loving truth in my life? Because the reality is that worship is not just a thing you do for one hour a week on Sunday mornings when you put on your nice clothes and pretend to be a saint. Rather, worship is a way of life that we're doing at every time, all throughout our lives. We are living lives of worship now, and that's what Christ called us to. He's saying Jews were known as outward signs of worship. They would, they would preach loud prayers on the street corners and wear fancy garb that talked about how righteous they were. He said none of that matters. All that matters is are you worshiping God in the spirit and in truth? It's a good question. Verse 25, the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will teach us all things. So she's kind of hedging. She's saying, well, maybe you don't know what you're talking about. I'll wait on the Messiah. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Saying, I'm the guy you're waiting on. Me, who has two thumbs and is the Messiah. This guy, that's what he's doing. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, what seekest thou or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men of the city, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out to the city and came unto him. So the people came out of the city, came to Jesus. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. This would drive me nuts if I was one of his followers. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. So he's doing that right now, right? He's, he's doing the mission. Have you ever enjoyed something you're doing so much that you don't want to stop to eat? All the time. You're lucky. I love when I get in a groove working like that, and that's how Jesus said he was. He says, Art... Our spiritual water that will leave us not thirsty is him. And then our spiritual meat is to do the will of the Father. And when we're doing that well, we get in that groove, we don't even need to eat anymore. We don't need those creature comforts. Verse 35, say not ye, there are yet four months and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white already to harvest. In, in wheat time, when it's ready to harvest, it gets white on top. So he's saying, you think you got four months right now is harvest time. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit into life eternal, and both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor, other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. He's talking to us now. 
People have been sowing the gospel for 2,000 years. All around us are people who God has primed to receive the good news and respond in faith. The question is, are we doing that basic labor of going out and reaping that which someone else sowed? And for too many of us, the answer is no, not really. No, not really. And I've used this metaphor before. Pretend that everybody's got stage four cancer and you alone have the cure. What kind of person are you if you don't let them know about that cure? Are you a good person that's just respecting their boundaries? Don't be ridiculous. We have something that's better than a cure for cancer, and yet how often are we offering it to people who have no idea what it is? And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. So the things that we need to conclude worship with, the meditations are, first, Jesus is the Savior of the world, right? What gets people to come to him? Does it just, sometimes, yes, the Holy Spirit causes people to dream dreams, and they're like, I got to get over to a church. Most of the time, it's on you and me. Would that woman at the well have come to Jesus if he hadn't come to her first, if he hadn't spoken to her? No. Would the people in the city have come out to meet Jesus if she hadn't spoken to them? No. There is only one way the faith of Jesus Christ is transmitted. It's by the words of his people to those who don't know yet. Are you warning people who don't know? Are you extending hope to those who don't know? Do you have a testimony that you can tell people? Why aren't you telling people? Why aren't I telling people? Because the thing is, then they come and they see, and sure, some of them don't like what they say and get out of here, but some people, they come and they say, hey, Doug, I came because of your testimony, but now I have one of my own. Now I don't come because of what I heard from you. I come because of what's God's in God's word and what I've encountered on my own. And that's the whole thing we're doing here. We have a living and active faith that we then offer to other people to adopt, and some of them do, and God is glorified in that. Who's interested in doing that with me? I personally, I have a feeling that the Holy Spirit is doing powerful things in this town, priming many hearts for what we're doing here. I'm not going to say who it was, but someone talked to me a couple weeks ago, said, I've tried out a lot of churches. They all use that family language. Oh, we're a spiritual family. This is the very first church I've been in that actually feels that way. That made me so happy because I feel that way too. The thing that, that causes all kinds of harm, though, is when Christians forget we're not any better than anybody out there. You know, some people, they read this passage and they go, oh, at least I haven't been married to somebody five times. At least I'm not a woman like this. Would it be right to assume that this woman comes from a dysfunctional background? The woman at the well? Yeah. That's who Jesus died for. That's who Jesus calls. And all of us are broken without Jesus. Amen? Amen. And Jesus died for all of us. Amen? And Jesus can fix all of us. Amen? Amen? Let's stand and sing our closing hymn. I'm going to change it up last minute. It's not going to be projected. It's going to be Rescue the Perishing because it fits better with today's message. It's hymn number 591. All right, let's stand and sing hymn number 591. A reminder that we have been given this cure for cancer to rescue those who are dying. Rescue the perishing.